Our word today comes from Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 19. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His, his ways are eternal. I saw the tents from Kashan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in rift. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are, not, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to go on the heights. We're in Habakkuk chapter 3. We've been looking at uh, this Old Testament prophet with a, a desire to, I hope, move from... Times of worry to worship or fear to faith. When crisis comes, having the resources that God gives us through the gospel to, to live in a manner that pleases Him, that brings Him great honor and great glory. Not profaning His name, but living in such a way that He says, that's my son, that's my daughter. You know, Habakkuk has shown us, I pray, that... Even, we saw last week, even during catastrophic economic times of starvation and hardship, he said, I will be patient, I will wait on you, I will rejoice in you. And he knows, he's been, the revelation has come to him is that his nation, his people, they're going to be overcome by the Babylonians, the, the city of Jerusalem will fall, the temple will be destroyed, the walls will be broken down, and his people, his friends, his family will be taken into exile. Now that, that's a tragic story. But the way it ends is fantastic because it reveals to us that we can, in the midst of crisis as well, whether it's personal or national, we can be patient and rejoice in the Lord our God. That's, that Habakkuk wasn't, you know, he was an oracle, he was a prophet, yeah, but we have, as we will see, something infinitely more to get through these really difficult times and not grovel through and come out barely alive, but to move through them and grow and thrive and rejoice in the midst of them. You say, that's impossible. It's not. 
1851, Alan Gardner was a missionary off the southern tip of South America, and he and his entire ship, they were shipwrecked on a small island. They all died. It's not a, it's not a good story in terms of how it ended up for them, but it's a great story. He was the last one to survive, and he, he kept a journal, and they found it next to his body. And in the journal, the last two entries, he writes and quotes the 34th Psalm, verse 10. He writes, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord shall lack no good thing. And then right afterward, he writes this. <clears throat> Listen. I'm overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. This man is shipwrecked, away from his family, his friends. All of those who are with him are dead. He is starving to death. And he writes, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. How? I mean, we equate the goodness of God with how well our life is going, right? If, there, if our fig tree is blossoming, if there's money in our accounts and our relationships are going well, then God is good. When circumstances turn and I lose my job, or my relationships go sour, or suddenly your reputation is smeared, now God's not so good. Alan Gardner, Habakkuk, understood something so much deeper. That whether the times are good or bad, that they could rejoice in the goodness of God. Now, if that's possible, that's worth millions of dollars. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's, that, that, if you could have the answer to that question in good times and bad times, rejoicing deeply, here's the good thing. You get it for free today from the Word of God. You don't have to pay a million dollars. I can rejoice in the Lord, Habakkuk said. I want to look at four things with you this morning, and by God's grace, you'll hear and turn. Rejoicing in suffering. What is it? Number two, when does it happen? Number three, how is it done? I mean, how do we rejoice? Yes, it is something you do. And number four, how is it possible for us? Because I hear that, rejoice in the midst of suffering, and I almost want to laugh at it because it seems impossible. Let's look at the first one. What is rejoicing in the midst of suffering? Look at verse 19. It's likened in our passage to walking on the mountaintops. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. This is how he ends the book. He makes, me, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Now, what's he talking about? Is he, you know, Habakkuk's, you know, suffering catastrophe in his nation, and this great revelation is coming. He says, I'm going to go for a hike. Is that what he said? You know not. The mountaintops were dangerous. They were dangerous places to be. If you'd slip, you'd fall. Same thing today, right? But the mountaintops were also a very secure place if you could get there. And if you could get there securely and stay there and your feet were sure not to slip and fall, then that was the best place to be. Why? For several reasons. One, you could see things from the mountaintop. You could have a vision, a perspective, right? Just like the watchtower that we saw. They could see and look out. And not only that, you were secure from enemy forces. Very difficult to attack going uphill. It's high ground, right? That's why they built cities up on hills and they built walls. That's high ground, difficult to attack. Habakkuk is saying that God, through my crises, through this suffering, has lifted me up and he's placed me up on the mountaintop and he's kept my feet sure. He's given me security. He's given me safety. He's given me a perspective of it all. And so I can see it from his vantage point and know that all is not lost. When evil times come, we talked about this last week, you will change. The only question is how. Will you 
move to God and therefore be lifted up in the midst of crisis and therefore be changed for the better. Transformation of character, becoming more patient, more kind, more humble, more gracious. Will you find that? Or will you move away? Will you stay in the flatlands and have the crisis cause you to come unglued? Will you become more sweet or more sour, more humble or more cynical, more empathetic or more hard-hearted? You will change for better or for worse. The only question is how. And Habakkuk shows us here in verse 19 that, in fact, there's a word here, and we lose it in translation. It literally says, he enables me to walk on my heights. What he's saying is, my transformation of character, he will work out. He will change me. The crisis may still come, and the crisis may be something I don't want, but he will transform me in the midst of it, so that when I come out of the crisis, I'll be better, I'll be stronger. I'll be more kind and more gracious. Why? What is it about the crisis that changes us? There was a third aspect of the mountaintop. Not only did it bring perspective, not only did it bring uh, security, but the mountaintops is where people worship God. They went up to the mountaintops because they thought, I'm closer to God. Even the pagan worshipers did this. On the mountaintop, there's proximity to living God. In the midst of crisis, on the mountaintop, there's proximity to the God who will change you. And you cannot come into his presence without being changed. Josh Groban, in a very popular song, for those of you who know this artist, in his song, Raise Me Up, he writes this, When I am down and my soul so weary, when troubles come and my heart burdened be, then I am still and I wait here in the silence until you come and sit a while with me. Listen, saints. You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up so I can walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to be more than I can be. Crisis will change you. God wants to take you and raise you up and put your feet firmly on the mountaintop so you'll have perspective and security and His immediate presence which will change you through and through. That's what rejoicing in the midst of crisis is. It's His presence. Number two. When does it happen? When does this rejoicing take place? Concurrently with the crisis. We rejoice in the midst of suffering, not once it ends. I mean, most people rejoice when the crisis ends, right? When you get through it and it's over, you're thinking, all right, thank you, Lord. And then you rejoice. But that's not what we see here. In fact, if you look at verse 16 again, verse 16 is extraordinary. In chapter 1, he complains to God. God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. In chapter 2, he complains again, and God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. And it's a tragic response. And so we get this, he's contemplating this. In fact, look at, look at the beginning of verse 16. Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Do you see what's happening? He's falling apart. He says, I'm bawling. I can't stand up. My insides are pining away. This is terrible. And then he says in the same verse, yet, I will patiently, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then in 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will wait. And that word wait patiently in the Hebrew is to have deep peace. A deep peace in the core of who he is. It's so startling because what he's saying is this. I am grieving and I am deep sorrow and at the same time I'm rejoicing the Lord. Now I don't know about you, for the Western mind that's, that's a total disconnect. Because we think we are one, we're either rejoicing, we're joyful, or two, 
we are sorrowful and full of grief. And the two are diametrically opposed. They don't come together. And the Bible says, yes, they do, and they absolutely can in Christ. That you can rejoice deeply and have great patience in the midst of the suffering. In fact, we in the church go one step further and we say, well, you know what? If you're mourning and you're grieving, then you lack faith, right? I mean, we can, the church comes along and says, where's your stiff upper lip? Come on. Is that what the scriptures teach? I mean, what about Job? Take Job, chapter 1. Job loses everything. And this is, what it, this is what the author writes. Job got up, he tore his robe and he shaved his head. He's mourning deeply. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the, Lord, may the name of the Lord be praised in all this Job did not sin. He was grieving and rejoicing. He was in great sorrow. And he was still joyful. How much does the church need to hear when it comes to seeing people in sorrow and still rejoicing in the Lord? Christianity is not either you're happy or you're grieving. Following Christ and the gospel of grace says you rejoice in the midst of your suffering. And there's something else about this that's fantastic. When you're rejoicing in the midst of the suffering, the suffering actually causes your joy to increase. How? I mean, how is that possible? If I'm suffering and the suffering gets worse, then that means the joy must decrease. Not so in Christ. Because what happens, and many of you can testify to this, the greater the grief, the greater the sorrow, in Christ, the more you're driven to God. Into His presence, into prayer, into the Word, into community, right? So the grief gets worse and you move closer to God. And the closer you get to God, what do you experience? His joy. His manifestation. His presence. His love. His radical transforming power. And so not only is it feasible to rejoice in the midst of suffering. We can go one step further and say something even more radical. That your sorrow and grief, if approached in the cross, will cause your joy to increase. Without the joy... Listen, if there's no joy in the midst of suffering, you cannot even feel the pain. One of two things will happen. Without joy in the midst of real crisis, you will come unraveled. It will destroy you, right? That's one option. Or option B is, you'll just shut it off. You won't recognize it. You've done this. You turn away. You say, I'm not going to feel it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to recognize it. Both those are highly destructive. But in Christ... If there's joy in the midst of suffering, you can feel the pain and experience the grief and move through the sorrow without causing it to cause you to stumble or sin. You can actually experience the sorrow and increase your joy at the same time. Now that is extraordinary. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. So what is it? What is rejoicing in the midst of suffering? It's walking on the mountaintops in the presence, security, and perspective of God. When does it take place? In crisis. (laughs) Not before... Not after, in the midst of the crisis. Now, so the operative question is, all right, that sounds great. I don't have a million dollars, give it to me. Number three, how do we do this? This is so practical and I'm going to keep it real simple. Because by God's grace, you'll take these three things and begin doing them in crisis mode as well. To rejoice, we know, isn't something that's simply uh, an emotion, right? When we think of rejoicing, you think of cheering and smiling and laughing. But obviously, it's something much more than just an emotion. It is to rejoice in the midst of... It's a discipline. Are you tired of hearing that word? It's a means of grace. It's something you actually do. 
So if you want to say, yes, I want to rejoice, I want to grow closer to God, I want to have incredible gospel-saving hope in the midst of my greatest crises, because I know they're going to come, I know what I've been through, I know it's going to get worse, so I want that, then you must exercise. I'm going to give you three here. Repeating, remembering, and rejoicing correctly. Number one, repeating a discipline. Look, look with me at verse 18. He's closing this entire book. And Habakkuk says, after this incredible revelation that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, he says, yet in the midst of all this, Lord, and the fact that you're actually bringing this to pass, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Do you see what he does there? It's so subtle. We blow right by it. He says, it's Hebrew poetry. He repeats himself. And he repeats himself. And he repeats himself again and again. In fact, it's a biblical theme throughout all the sacred scripture. Not a single thing of import in the Bible. If something's important, biblically, it'll be said again and again and again. Old Testament, New Testament. In the gospel, in the letters, in the poetry, in the history, in the prophecy. Again and again. Why? Because we need to hear it again and again. Repeating is a fundamental discipline of the faith. And what happens here? Notice Habakkuk says... First he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. And then secondly he says, I will be joyful in God my Savior. And so he's saying the same thing, but he adds something, right? He's repeating the same truth, but from a different angle. He's hearing the gospel again, but the fast of the diamond's been turned. So now he's seeing the same truth from a more brilliant light. And he says it to himself again and again and again. Repetition, that you will hear it and go deeper. No truth is ever said once you, I got it. All right, really fundamental. Parents, did you ever notice how your vocabulary changes when you become a parent? Right? Did you ever, before you were a parent, say to someone, no, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. No one talks like that. You become a parent, and with your child, don't you do that? Why? Because they need to hear it again and again and again and again. Right? I mean, do you really expect to tell your son, you know, don't beat up your brother? No. And then for the rest of their childhood, they're never going to do it again? What do you do? You say it again and again and again. So too, God, as our Father with us, His children, does He need to repeat it over and over and over? I mean, why are there four Gospels? Have you ever asked that? Why not just Matthew? Why? By the time you get to Luke... I mean, you got the fundamentals down, right? Christ was born of the virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died in the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's going to come again. You know all this, right? Why? Because every single gospel story tells the same narrative. It just turns it a bit. Same truths, different angle. And every time you read it, it goes in a little bit deeper, right? And every time it's repeated to you, you got it a little more soundly. It's changing you. Repetition, repetition. Why so many miracles? You know, there was great debate for years. The 5,000 and the 4,000, were they two separate events? Of course they were. The scriptures say that. They said, well, could, he couldn't have done this twice. Really? Of course he could, and he did. It was a repetitious event. Why? To teach us. We're slow to hear. We're slow to change. Every mind moves rapidly away from the eternal truths of God. Right? We're, I mean, how often are you in the midst of prayer? Tangent. Right? I mean, you're praying fervently to God. Dear Lord, I'm this. Oh, I got work tomorrow. Oh, that's right. Lord, God, relationship, tangents. 
So God, through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, repeats again and again and again. And he calls us back to it. And he reveals again the gospel of grace. And he reveals his eternal truth. He says, hear these things again and again. Meditate on them until they're so deep that you know them and they're coming back out of you. Repetition. So here's the deal. If you don't do this, if there isn't repetition of God's eternal truth and the gospel of grace in your life, transforming you, then when you approach the word, you'll transform it. Do you understand what that means? Either the scriptures repeated to you again and again in spirit and truth, not religiously, but in spirit and truth, will change your character and therefore enable you to see the the word of God truthfully, or you will see the word of God and you will change it. Your circumstances will change it. There's a gentleman in our church who we had lunch a couple weeks back. And he said to me, something extraordinary is happening. I'm listening to a sermon. I'm going to a Bible study. And I'm taking what is being taught. And I go back and I read it myself. And I study it myself. And then I take what I've studied and what I've read and what I've meditated. And I talk to other people about it. And I go to my small group. And he said, something's happening. (laughs) What was happening? He's changing. He said, it's sinking in. It's getting a hold of me. It's changing who I am. Why? Repetition. He, hear, he heard it. He read it. He studied it. He talked about it. It's a basic discipline. One, repetition. Two, remembering. Look with me. Verses, verse 5, verse 6, verses 14 and 15. Do you know what he's actually doing, Habakkuk's doing here? He's remembering the Exodus account. Did you notice that? He's going back and, I mean, just look at verse 5. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. What is this? These are the plagues that went out on Egypt, right? Verse 6. He stood and he shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. Mount Sinai. Verses 14 and 15. With his own spear he pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us. Gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. That's the destruction of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Now, why would Habakkuk be remembering and calling to his account in his mind the Exodus account? You know why. I mean, that is the gospel account for the Jews, right? I mean, he's remembering that they were in slavery in Egypt and God, by his outstretched arm, by his mighty hand, delivered them, right? Not anything they've done. He's remembering that it was God who chose them and God who moved to save them and God who did this glorious work. And he's recalling that it was by God's grace and grace alone that they're not still in Egypt and still in slavery. He's recalling, he's remembering the gospel to himself. And you know what happens? He does this all the way through the chapter until he gets to verse 16 and goes, Okay, now I'm okay. He's going, remember, remember, God is sovereign. God chose you. God delivered you. You have been set free. Remember. And then he goes, okay, I got it. Look at verse 16. He says, now I will wait patiently. In verse 18, now I will be joyful in God my Savior. Do you see what he's doing? He's preaching the gospel to himself. Do you do this in the midst of crisis? I mean, some of you go, I got I to hear a sermon, you know. So you go online and you Google someone and you listen to a sermon. He's preaching to himself what he knows to be true. This is not uncommon. Psalm 42. In fact, it's all throughout sacred scripture. Self-preaching. You all know that you've been called to be a preacher, yes? The psalmist is, the psalmist is saying, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your, he's talking to himself. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior, 
And my God, uh, Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. He's not preaching to a church. He's not praying. He's talking to himself. Yes, he's having a self-conversation. Do you have those? He's doing that, and what he's saying is, God is my Savior. God is my hope. God is my King. Again and again and again. And what he's doing is he's connecting in his present moment what he knows to be true from the past in his crisis. So what he's saying is this. Things are bad right now. But I'm remembering the hope that I have in Christ. Things are really difficult right now in my life. But I, I know the hope that's going to come when Christ comes again in glory. And he's connecting eternal truth with present crisis. Luke chapter 8. Remember the disciples are in the boat. The waves kick up. Jesus sound asleep. Remember what the disciples say? <laughs> Lord, Lord, we're about to die. We're going to drown. The waves are going to come over. Don't you love us? Don't you care about us? And so Jesus wakes up so compassionate. This is what happens. Jesus stands up. He calms the storm. He turns to his disciples and he says, Where is your faith? Not, "Mm, poor guys, so scared, little sheep. Let me pray for you. He says, where is your faith? He's saying this to them. You've been around me long enough to know. I mean, I've healed the sick. I've done things that you know. You know who I am. You know, really? Do you think this stupid little storm I'm going to let take your lives? Remember. And what he's saying is, take what you know about me. Take what you know that I've done and connect it with the present crisis that we're in. Or that you think that we're in. I'm your Lord. I'm your King. I'm your Savior. Where's your hope? They knew, right? They knew. And so he's saying, where's your faith? Remember what you know. Make the connection. Stop being so foolish. Stop being children. And the metaphor is fantastic. I mean, I don't want to dissect this too far, no pun intended. But what does it mean to remember? To attach a body part, right? If your hand falls off, you go to the doctor, you go sew it back on. They sew it back on. They remember it, right? They reconnect it to your body. This is what we're called to do. To remember and connect what we know to be true. Who God is. What He has done. The hope we have to the present crisis. And when you do that, and then you repeat it to yourself again and again, you know what will happen? There will be joy. There will be courage. There will be humility. There will be great strength in the midst of it all. In fact, you won't even... You won't get caught up in the crisis. The waves will disappear because you'll fix your eyes on Christ. Okay. Repeat, remember... And to rejoice correctly. And this will take us to our last point. We've heard, we've already established that rejoicing can't just be an emotional response, right? Paul says in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So, I mean, Paul's not saying always be happy. I've heard this taught. It's not a biblical teaching for Christians to walk around going, hey, you know, everybody's happy. No. The apostle wasn't teaching that either. To rejoice is not an emotional response. It's also not just a cognitive response. It's not just, okay, think about the gospel. Think about, ah! No, that won't work either. Rejoicing, biblically, is this. You rejoice when you rejoice. You're ascribing value to something, right? I mean, when you're rejoicing, you are, you're, you're treasuring something. And you're, you're savoring something. You're... Lifting something up, you're appreciating something. Rejoicing in something is a form of worship. Right? Whatever you're rejoicing in, you're saying, this is good. 
If you rejoice that ultimately, then you have your ultimate form of worship. Basic. Here we go. If I come to you and I say, the Giants won the World Series, and you say to me, who are the Giants? I will know that you did not rejoice, right? I mean, you did not attach value to the Giants winning the World Series. I can, I can glean that from your response, right? I say to you, did you hear that President Obama is flying into San Jose on Tuesday? And you go, <gasps> and you grab your tent and your sleeping bag, right? And he flies into Moffat, and you put your tent and your sleeping bag across the street three days prior. And then you get a glimpse of him, and he comes out of Air Force One, and you pass out. <laughs> right? And your friend says, wake up. And you spend the next week in a euphoric state of joy. Because you saw... We would know that you ascribe great value to the President of the United States. Would we not? Of course we wouldn't. What you rejoice in, you're worshipping. What you rejoice in, ultimately, you ultimately worship. Now, if you're saying, in order to rejoice in the midst of crisis, I must, I must repeat, I must remember, and I must rejoice, rejoice correctly. The most difficult part of all this is, I, I get it, and I tried it, and I fail. I mean, when crisis really comes, I've engaged in some of these disciplines, and it doesn't work. I don't get the trick, and that's the problem. It's not a trick. I don't get the technique. It's not a technique. Last point. Ready? Here we go. How is it possible for you, like Habakkuk, like Alan Gardner, in the moments of great crisis, to rejoice in the Lord and grow deeply in him? Habakkuk is saying this, even though I'm stricken with grief, even though I'm sobbing, even though my insides are being destroyed, even though I can't even stand, because even though in the midst of this crisis you've revealed God, I am patient, I am rejoicing in the Lord my Savior. If Habakkuk could do it, we, in light of the gospel of grace, so much more should be able to rejoice and thrive and grow And whatever crisis may come our way. Why? Why should we, more than Habakkuk, be able to rejoice? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 72 disciples. Do you remember? He sent them out to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And they come back. And they come back rejoicing. Do you remember? Let me read to you. The 72 returned, and it says, with joy, same word. And they said, Lord... Even the demons submit to us in your name. This is amazing. And and Jesus says, that's right. That's cool. No. He turns to them and says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And then he says in verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back and they're so excited and they're rejoicing in their circumstances. He says, don't rejoice in that. You're rejoicing in the wrong thing. You're putting your value in the wrong thing. You're misplacing it. In fact, that word written in verse 20 there, it literally means to engrave. He said, you've got to rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Even today, I mean, we rejoice if our name's written, hopefully for good reasons, right? I mean, if you get your name in the paper because you were MVP of the game, I mean, you cut it out and you go, look, you know, you can show your kids, look, at MVP, right? If someone says, we're going to put your name on the side of the wall, the building, that's probably a good thing, right? They want to recognize you, maybe you were a donor, you get your name on a trophy. Name recognition 
means that we're somebody. We're significant. Most valuable player. That's got to mean something. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't you dare for a moment put your significance in that. Don't rejoice so deeply over becoming the most valuable player. Don't, don't say, I must be somebody because a building has my name on it. He's saying, don't you dare do that. Don't say I'm somebody because I got into that school or I got straight A's or I got that job or I married that woman or that man. Don't say I'm somebody because I live in this neighborhood and drive this car and have this amount. Don't you dare. He says, don't put your significance in that. If you do, you're on the wrong mountaintop. Your footing is not sure because you won't remain MVP. Those bank accounts won't always be plush. You're not always going to live in that neighborhood. When your relationship goes sour, you will fall off the mountain. He said, there's one mountain to be on, and that's with God, my Father, and only there will I keep your feet sure. It's easy to rejoice when things are good. I mean, most people rejoice on their wedding day, right? Not the right mountaintop to stay on. Most people rejoice when their first child is born. Not the right mountaintop to be on. Most people rejoice when they graduate, when they get their first job, when they score their first touchdown. There, there's right rejoicing and there's inordinate rejoicing. Christ saying, don't mess it up. Don't fix your hope and your significance and your meaning on the wrong thing. He's saying, don't you see? Your name's written. If you know me, if you've repented and you believe me, your name's written in heaven. There's something to rejoice over that is ultimate. And he's saying, this is it. Repeat it to yourself again and again and again. My name's written in heaven. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Do you remember? Up to a mountaintop. And they have a little meeting. Do you remember? Christ is glory. He's at this transfiguration. And he is, he's shiny. I mean, he's um, presented to Peter, James, like they've never seen him before. And then, if that wasn't powerful enough, Moses and Elijah show up. They have a conversation. What are they talking about? Do you know what they were talking about? I'll read to you. As Jesus was praying, they're on the mountaintop, Peter, James, John, Jesus. The appearance of his face, Jesus' face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flashing as, as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. What? what? Literally, you know what it says in the Greek? It says they, ta- they were talking about his exodus. That's the literal word, his exodus. You know what was going on, don't you? Moses is talking with Jesus and said, Now, the exodus that you called me to, that I engaged in, that was something else, Lord. I mean, that was something else. What you did? He's saying, but this exodus, this is going to be infinitely more extraordinary. The exodus that we, we, we pulled off there, fantastic. <clears throat> but the exodus you're going to do, so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more sweeping for mankind. Moses risked his life going before Pharaoh to liberate Israel from the bonds 
and slavery of Egypt. Jesus Christ, the ultimate Moses, gave his life to set us free, not just from political and social oppression, but from sin and evil and death itself. The first Moses took a lamb, killed the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. The second Moses, the ultimate Moses, came along and he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It was his blood that was spilled and his body that was broken. The first Moses had the names of the children of Israel engraved, written, on the jewels, the stones, the sapphires, the diamonds, on the breastplate of the high priest. And when the high priest went into the holiest of holies before God, when the high priest stood, his brother Aaron, in the presence of God, the names of Israel were on his breastplate. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and executed the ultimate exodus, for those who know him, for those who have repented, for those who believe, for those who have followed him, your name is etched on his breastplate. And therefore, listen, when he goes into the Holy Spirit, when he stands before the Father, and he is right now because he was the Lamb of God that was slain, when he goes into his presence, your name is written on his breastplate, on his heart. And you know what that means? The metaphor is fantastic. Your name is written on a jewel or a diamond because when God the Father sees you in Christ, he sees a gemstone. He sees a diamond. He sees a sapphire. Not because of you, because of Christ. Not your work, but the work of the cross. You say, how could that possibly be? I know myself. I know that I'm completely lost. I know that I deserve to be cast out into hell. How is it that my name could possibly be written on the gemstone of Christ's heart so that when God sees me, he sees his son? If it is true that through the saving grace of Christ and the work of the cross that your name really is written down, not only in the book of life but on the heart of Christ himself, And if it's true that you come into the presence of the Father through Jesus Christ, and as He stands there and He sees you and He sees your name, He sees you as a sapphire or a jewel or a diamond. He sees you as beautiful and radiant because of the work of Christ. And the most compelling question has to be, how could that ever be, knowing myself? If you know yourself well enough, then you will say like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this mess that I am in? And then you will cry out, Christ. On the night that he was betrayed in the upper room, he said this very thing to his disciples. He said, this cup represents the cup of my blood. When you drink it, he said, remember me. When he passed the bread, he said, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. When you eat from it, remember me. Even in that moment, he's calling us back to a faith of remembrance. To call to mind, to connect present moment with eternal reality. Jesus Christ is saying to you this understanding. That your name is written in heaven. Not as a result of your work, but as his. If you know him, if you've repented and you believed. If you know him. Your most valuable resource in the time of greatest crisis 
is remembering and repeating to yourself again and again until it goes so deep you say, I am okay. I know him. He knows me. He has me. I'm secure. Christ is saying, don't rejoice in the fact that you got that job or married that person. Stop doting on those things. Dote on the right things. Stand on the right mountain. When your bank accounts are depleted, he says, remember who I am and what I've done. Remember that your name is written in heaven because there is eternal riches. When someone you love rejects you and turns away from you, he says, in that moment of crisis, remember that your name is written in heaven and you are seated with me at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. He said, when your reputation goes bad and people malign your name, he says, remember, they did the same to me. But your reputation with my Father is spot on. Christ is calling us in the midst of suffering to live on that mountaintop, to rejoice deeply in the greatest crises that will come. Because that's where you are already in Christ. He's saying, don't you know it? You're already with me. You're in me and I'm in you. I'm seated at my Father's right hand, as Paul said in Colossians. So too are you right now. Remember that. Repeat it to yourself. Rejoice in that deeply. Again and again and again. Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 18, in his first sermon that he wrote, the title was, Christians Should Be Happy. Now you hear that and you're thinking, wow, he grew. But he was right on. It must have been a good time in his life when he wrote it. Three main points. You'll love it. First point was, our bad things will always turn out for good. Romans 8.28 God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Point number two, Edward said, our good things, your adoption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life of God, can never, ever, ever be taken away. And the last thing he said is, and the best things are yet to come. Hmm? The bad things will turn out for good. The good things can't be taken away. And the best things are yet to come. And then he writes this and we'll close. He ends the sermon. If you know this, really know it, you may now look down on the whole army of worldly afflictions and suffering and you can consider with joy that however great they are and however numerous even though they might join all their forces together against you and spend all their strength and vigor and violence against you, they cannot do you any real harm or mischief and it will all be in vain. You may triumph over them all if you know these things. Do you know them? If you do, repeat, remember, and rejoice. Let's pray we'll do that right now. As you said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of your Father. You said, blessed are those who hunger now, for they will be satisfied. You said, blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. You said, blessed are those when men hate them, and when they are excluded and insulted and rejected in your name, they will be sons of God. And then you said, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, because great is our reward in heaven. Give us this eternal perspective, I pray. 
cause us to exercise in the discipline of rejoicing. That we would, in good times and bad, repeat to ourselves these eternal truths. That we would remember the foundation of the gospel of grace. Who you are, who we were, what you have done, and how you've changed us. And then, Lord, cause us to rejoice. Deeply, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.